0: welcome everyone to episode 17 of curse land an anthology show about strange happenings curious folk and small towns i'm your host and sole proprietor of curse land which can be found at www.curse.land i hope you enjoyed today's episode let's get started So I saw earlier this week that the man who was the chair and founder of the Peregrine Fund, which is the organization that effectively single-handedly saved the Peregrine Falcon from extinction here in North America. uh, His name was Tom Cade and he passed away earlier this month and I didn't see that much reporting on this or anything like that. So I figured it'd be a good idea to give this story a little bit of visibility. This is a, uh, This is a piece on Tom Cade from the website of his organization, theperegrinefund.org. On a spring day in 1980, Dr. Tom Cade climbed into a peregrine falcon nest box on top of a release tower in Brigantine National Wildlife Refuge in New Jersey. Just a couple of years earlier, Tom's team of biologists and falconers had bred, raised, and released the falcon pair that now raised their own family on this tower These two birds were part of a nationwide recovery program for the species. Peregrine falcon populations had declined drastically in the 1950s and 60s due to the widespread use of DDT, a pesticide that interfered with calcium metabolism and caused birds to lay very thin shelled eggs that would crack during incubation. By 1970, peregrine falcons were extinct in the eastern United States and fewer than 40 pairs were estimated to remain in the West. Dr. Cade, an ornithologist and lifelong falconer, was acutely aware of this decline and worked with others across the nation to ban the use of DDT and develop a recovery plan for our nation's fastest animal. Tom marked one of the proudest moments of his career atop that tower in the spring of 1980. That's when he discovered three young nestlings, some of the first peregrine chicks produced in the wild in eastern North America since the 1950s. Looking back on the day, Tom recalled, I then understood that recovery of the peregrine would be an accomplished fact in a few more years. He was right. In August of 1999, Tom stood on stage with then-Secretary of the Interior Bruce Babbitt to officially declare that the peregrine falcon was recovered in North America and had been removed from the endangered species list. To this day, it's considered among the greatest conservation success stories of all time, Tom would refer to it as an effort of teamwork and tenacity. In saving the peregrine, Tom co-founded a nonprofit conservation organization to effectively manage the financial support being offered by the public. Called the Peregrine Fund, this organization grew to become much more than he originally envisioned, and over the past five decades has worked with more than a hundred species in sixty-five countries worldwide. Many species, such as the Meridius kestrel, northern aplomato falcon several species of asian vultures california condor and more are thriving today because of the work the peregrine fund and its many partners have undertaken dr tom Cade passed away on february 6th 2019 at the age of 91 years the world of wildlife conservation has lost a pioneer and champion today said the peregrine fund's president and ceo dr rick watson Tom fought for peregrines and practical conservation solutions and mentored generations of passionate individuals. His reach extended around the globe to inspire raptor research and conservation on virtually every continent and on behalf of hundreds of species. While we are devastated by his passing, we are uplifted, knowing his legacy lives on in this organization and among his many students, friends, followers, and supporters. We're grateful Tom continued to travel, write, practice falconry, and visit with the staff up until his last days. His advice, conviction, and gentle presence will be sorely missed. Our thoughts are with Tom's wife and devoted partner, Renetta, and their children and grandchildren in this time of loss. Since his first ornithological survey of St. Lawrence Island in the Bering Sea in 1950, Tom's passion for natural history and his professional career spanned nearly 70 years. It involved teaching at Syracuse University and Cornell Lab of Ornithology in New York, postdoctoral research on desert birds and raptors in southern Africa, starting the peregrine breeding program at Cornell University, co-founding and leading the Peregrine Fund, and researching the critically endangered Meridius Kestrel. The board and staff of the Peregrine Fund mourn the loss of their co-founder and mentor, one of the world's most visionary conservationists and widely respected scientists, Professor Tom Cade. As someone who has made my home far away from my birthplace, over in Japan, I deeply understand the sense of wonder and beauty this place can hold. With its long history and elegant culture, Japan is a fascinating place to visit, and every year droves of foreign tourists come here to take it all in, much as I did before I decided to move here. Yet I also understand the deep mysteries this place can hold in addition to all of the odd new sights and interesting traditions And sometimes these outsiders come face-to-face with not only culture shock, but also frightening and ominous mysterious forces. Here are some tales of strangers in a strange land coming across forces beyond their comprehension. This is another collection of stories from MysteriousUniverse.org. This is titled Foreigners in Japan and Frightening Supernatural Encounters. Some of the paranormal experiences by visitors to Japan seem to take on an almost demonic demeanor. Take an account published on the site, The Tentative Apologist, from a witness who says this experience happened as he was in Japan for a short stint to teach English as mission work in Hokkaido in the summer of 1993. However, the witness would have a very frightening experience during his stay at a small apartment provided by the church. It started at 3 a.m., when he woke to a deep and profound sense of fear that seemed to spring up from nowhere, as well as a disturbing sound that sounded like an old man clearing his throat right outside the door, even though there should have been no one up at that time. The witness says of what happened next. I lay in bed deathly still, listening. The church was an old building. Every step you'd take would result in a creak from a floorboard. So as I lay there, with a great sense of fear, I listened with the utmost attentiveness for any sound of creaking floorboards which would signal the person moving away, but no sound ever came. Perhaps twenty minutes later, I suddenly felt a presence in the room, as if the presence behind the voice I had heard had now entered in. Then, I felt something descending upon me and covering me somewhat like a blanket. As a result, I was completely immobilized and, I soon discovered, unable to speak. I tried to scream, but I could hear only the faintest whisper, and then I heard it, although his voice was not audible. It was in my head. The first thing I heard was a growling sound, as if I had stuck my head in the mouth of one of Siegfried and Roy's tigers. Then, along with the growling, came the voice. This was no old man's voice. Imagine that you have a sound effects CD, which includes demonic voice among its many effects. That was what this voice was like. With the growling sound in the background, it spoke, saying my name, and then saying, Easy does it, twice. Strange. I would have expected, perhaps, get the hell out of here. Nonetheless, I think I understood the message. I took easy does it to mean don't get too comfortable here. I'm in control. The way the voice spoke added to this interpretation as if it were mocking me. After that, all I heard was the growling. It continued for perhaps another 30 seconds, and then the presence lifted and I could move again. At that point, I had a sense that the presence had left, and I did the only thing I could—pray. And I continued to pray until the gray dawn light coming through my window had reached a safe degree of illumination. Shortly after this, I called the head missionary in Sapporo—the pastor didn't speak enough English to understand my experiences—and I told her what happened. For a moment, there was silence on the other end of the phone— And then she told me that the same events had happened the previous summer to the young western man who stayed in this church. So, did a demon actually oppress me at 3 a.m. those 18 years ago? Relative to my background set of beliefs, in which there are non-physical agencies, some of which are malevolent, this makes good sense. But as with so many other events in our lives, it remains open to interpretation. Was there anything paranormal to this at all, or was it just a case of what is called sleep paralysis, wherein the victim, stuck in a half-dreaming state where they fully believe there is an entity in the room with them, and which is usually written off as purely psychological? A very similar report comes from Your Ghost Stories, with a witness who says she visited Tokyo, Japan in the summer of 1978 to stay at a Japanese friend's house, where she stayed in a traditional tatami mat room with sliding rice paper doors. It was a bit creepy that on the first night a cold draft seemed to incessantly come from nowhere, from a closet, but she wrote it off as nerves at first. On the second night of her stay, she says she woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of faint laughter, which she at first took to be coming from the neighboring house, but which seemed to ever draw closer, bringing with it an inexplicable dread that seemed to sit atop her like a weight. The witness explains. Now the laughter was menacing it was a decidedly evil man's laughter which now closed in around my ears growing louder and louder hey just get up and go upstairs and get your friend i was wide awake i tried to do just that only to find that i could not move a muscle my instinct and unusual spiritual training for a young person kicked in I had practiced yoga since I was a young child and just before leaving, my yoga instructor had mentioned something about an East Indian holy man named Ramana. The mere mention of his name dispelled negative energies. I tried to say his name aloud. I was ready to try anything. To my horror, I discovered that I also could not speak. Fear freezes, my instinct told me. What I have to do in the midst of this terror is to relax. I began to imagine myself floating through a starry night sky. A calm in the midst of this storm around me came over me. I tried to speak the name of the holy man again, and this time I was able to mouth the word, though still no sound came out. Ramana. As I did so, it was as if a switch had been turned off. The evil laughter, which had become deafening about my ears, stopped. I was able to move and considered running upstairs to my friend, yet somehow I knew that I was safe now, so I thought I would not wake her. The entity was likely a demonic one, judging from my description, my friend later said, and I imagined that anyone who heard that laughter would concur. The direction from whence the laughter had originated, I realized, had been the bedding closet which had exhibited the chilly draft the night before. Maybe even more terrifying is an account given by a poster on Reddit who says that his brother had been stationed with the Marines over in Japan, where he lived on the base and apparently liked to go out drinking and partying whenever he had the chance with Japanese locals he had befriended around the base. One night, the brother went to one of his friend's houses just to chat, play video games, and unwind after a night out, and that was where his friend would spin a tale of malevolent supernatural forces, which the brother would soon find out were all too real the poster says. He tells my brother the main reason he wanted to get home early was because his little sister had been suffering from night terrors, causing her to wake up screaming, crying, and sometimes vomiting. He was worried about her and wanted to be home in case she had an episode. At this point in the story, I should explain how this guy's house was shaped. The house was built in the shape of a horseshoe with a garden in the middle, His bedroom was at the very edge of one side of the U-shape, and his sisters all the way at the other end, so they're essentially across the garden from each other. If he looks out of his window, he can see into hers and vice versa. So anyways, they decide to call it a night, and the Japanese guy walks over to the window to look across the garden into his sister's window to check on her. He lifts the blind and peers out for a fraction of a second before jumping back, screaming and looking at my brother like he just saw something horrible. My brother then goes to look and he stops him. He tells him that he saw a dark cloud with red eyes hovering over his sister's sleeping body. My brother naturally does not believe him and decides to look for himself. He creeps quietly over to the window and lifts the blind, but this time he finds himself eye to eye with what he describes as a dark puff of smoke with a face. My brother and this other guy admit that they got under the guy's covers and stayed there until it was light outside too afraid to lift the blankets and see that the smoky figure had come a little closer and was in the room with them, just on the other side of the thin sheets. I don't know what to believe or if maybe they drank more than what they said they did that night and imagined it all but I know my brother believes what he saw. He sticks to his story and when he tells it he looks like someone who saw something truly sinister. It is hard to say if this could have been demonic or not, but whatever it was definitely seems to have been at least somewhat malevolent to say the least. In our next account, we have a man from Sweden who says that he came here to Japan for a few months to study the Japanese language, and during this time he had managed to find a modest little apartment for rent in Tokyo. Although it seemed too good to be true at the time, as it is notoriously difficult for foreigners to find apartments in Japan, He would soon notice various oddities that were not particularly paranormal at first, but very unsettling nonetheless, and which managed to build an intangible sense of dread that would quickly evolve into pure supernatural horror. One of the first things he noticed as he explored his new place was a lone cabinet built into the wall, not uncommon for Japanese-style apartments and houses, which would not open no matter what he did. In another cabinet, he found an abandoned pack of cigarettes and a lighter, just sitting there in the murky shadows as if they had been placed there by someone who would come back at any moment, with only the film of dust upon them saying otherwise. And then there were the strange, scratching, scrabbling noises he began to hear, the first of which came when he was preparing a meal in his kitchen, which he heard in the other room and which sounded like something scraping on wood, even though no one else was there at the time. He would say... I scanned the room to find the source of the noise and immediately realized it came from the wardrobe. I got goosebumps all over my arms. It sounded like a rat was in there, scraping its tiny but sharp paws against the closed door. Then it suddenly stopped. I'd been holding my breath without realizing it and let out a long sigh. I went back into the kitchen. It must have been some plumbing in the wall behind the closet making that sort of noise. I refused to let my imagination make up the grudge or the ring-inspired fantasies. I liked this apartment, and I was going to stay in it. I went to bed and plugged in my earphones to make sure I wouldn't hear that scraping sound again. That very evening at 3.30am, the witness purportedly woke to the same sort of mysterious sound, and as he was very hot and sweaty, he reached for the AC remote control to realize it was nowhere to be found, forcing him to get up and adjust it manually. All the while, that incessant scraping, scratching sound seemed to emanate from the room's closet. He chalked it up to his imagination, put on some headphones, and ignored it. The next evening, he woke again at around 3 a.m. to the same noise, and he found that the closet was wide open, even though he was sure it had not been when he had gone to sleep, and he was startled to see that the cabinet that he had no luck in opening was flung open as well. When he looked into the previously inaccessible space, he says of what he saw next. There was a very small space down there, and it was extremely filthy. An odd smell came from it, like the smell of moist mold mixed with burnt wood. With my heart pounding in my chest, I bent over the cabinet and looked straight down in the cramped, dark space. At the bottom of the cabinet, surrounded by dust, long black strings of hair and other kinds of dirt, was an object that didn't seem to fit in. It had a gray color and a smooth surface. The remote control for the A.C., Insight struck like lightning. Whatever it was that was living in the filthy cabinet, apparently it liked to play games. I took a step back, and while a million thoughts went through my head, I did what was the nearest to surviving instinct I had and slammed the closet door shut. Or rather, I tried to. For some reason, it wouldn't close. I put both my hands on it and pushed it with all my strength, but something kept it from closing. After a few seconds of pushing, I started to look along the edge of the door, and when my glance reached the right corner of the door, I screamed out loud and flew away backwards. There was a small hand there. A small hand coming out from the closet. The four fingers were grabbing the edge of the door hard. If I hadn't turned on the lights earlier, I probably wouldn't have noticed it, but there it was. The skin was pale, there was black dirt around each fingernail, and thin blue veins were visible through the white skin on the knuckles it looked like it could have belonged to a small child. Knowing that I must have pinched those tiny fingers in the door opening pretty hard made me feel nauseous. Right in front of my eye, the small hand let go of the door and pulled back into the wardrobe. My mind went blank. I felt tears silently falling from my eyes. I sat frozen, staring at the closet for almost a minute, and then got up to go to the bathroom. The witness says that the next day the cabinet was still open, and that within there were found to be long, thin cuts in the wood ringed by brownish stains, which looked as if they were the result of small hands trying to scratch their way out. It is all a rather dramatic account, and one wonders if it is even real at all, or a bit of fiction posing as a real account, but whatever it is, it is extremely spooky and disturbing. Equally harrowing and spectacularly dramatic is a report from Reddit of a witness who says the whole frightening experience started with a hike with her fiancé, Charles, out to Japan's notorious and very haunted Okigahara Forest, also called the Suicide Forest, which I've written of here at MU before. The witness says that around three hours into their hike, the sky was suddenly overcast as clouds ominously rolled in. They took out the tent they had with them and set it up, with heavy rain hitting them not long after that, pattering atop the vinyl as they huddled amongst the lonely trees. During the night, they were kept awake by crashing noises in the forest and what sounded like people outside of their tent, but no source of the sounds could be identified. Charles apparently went out to check the area, but didn't come back, and that is where things get very odd indeed, of which the witness says. I started to panic it had been 20 minutes now of my yelling his name and wandering through the trees i could barely even see the light from our tent anymore at this point i had tears streaming down my face that's when i heard the sobbing i swung my flashlight in the direction of the sound there was charles huddled at the base of a large tree his shirt was torn and he was sobbing i ran to him but when i got close he started screaming at me but he wasn't speaking english i think he was speaking japanese which was impossible. Neither of us knew Japanese. His face looked strange. It was all distorted. His eyes were squinted, and even though he was sobbing, he was smiling, this eerie smile, and his eyes followed my every move. Charles, what happened? No response. Charles, what is wrong with you? What happened? We need to get back to the tent. I tried to take his arm, but he pulled away. After a few attempts, he followed me back to the tent, never saying a word honestly he didn't say much of anything till we were all the way back in california where i'm writing this he seems normal during the days he doesn't remember what happened he never wants to talk about it either but that isn't even what i'm worried about it's the nights he isn't him at night at first it wasn't that bad i would wake up some nights and he was standing at the foot of our bed motionless just watching me sleep he will eventually go back to bed on his own I tried waking him once and he was hysterical. He wouldn't stop screaming. I would also wake up to him mumbling Japanese, which I still could not explain. Maybe he picked some up while we were there. He would usually stop and go back to sleep. Upon their return home, things just kept getting weirder still. Roving cold spots, Charles waking at all hours in a trance, sometimes babbling in Japanese and often sleepwalking to wake with no memory of anything. Claw marks found in the walls and the ceiling, doors flung open, the works. The most terrifying experience happened one evening when the paranormal phenomena took a turn for the sinister, of which the witness claims. I woke up because there was something scratching my neck. I tried to brush it off, but realized it was caught. I quickly realized it was a poorly handmade noose. I screamed and took it off my neck. I reached for Charles, but he wasn't in bed. I walked the house, looking for him. There were nooses hung haphazardly all over my house. All were made from the same thick, red rope. Charles was standing in front of one in the middle of my kitchen, sobbing and mumbling in Japanese. The next night, Charles was sobbing in bed. He had scratched his neck completely raw. It was bleeding in some places and bruised. He wouldn't stop scratching until I physically secured his hands. He woke up, told me he must have had some type of allergic reaction, I don't know what to do. Charles writes them off as just me having vivid nightmares and says he probably just sleepwalks, but I know something is wrong. I think something came back with us. Is someone trying to pass off fiction as a real story, or is there something more to this? If so, what is it? Did something malicious follow them back from that forsaken place known as Okigahara Forest? Who knows? Finally, we come to an American visitor on Reddit who was with a Japanese friend named Hideki touring through the historic town of Hiroshima, which many of you will recognize as the town that was wiped off the face of the map when the United States dropped an atomic bomb on it on August 6th, 1945. Apparently, the ghosts that remain are none too happy about any of it, as the witness explains. I looked down a side street and froze. At the end of the street were a pair of figures, dancing. They were waltzing together, as if they were old-fashioned music playing in the background. Dimly, I could almost hear it. An American tune that would have had to have been smuggled in, maybe from the 1940s. But what would this music be doing here now? I was only dimly aware of this, however, as the figures seemed to be waltzing, zigzagging in my direction. As they came closer, I felt a hypnotic sense of horror as I realized these two figures were not just black, they were charcoal. Moving, seething masses of charcoal, their blackened bodies jerked awkwardly as they danced together. All discernible features other than outline scorched to ash. I opened my mouth to scream for Hideki and the figures vaporized turning to a harsh, fast-moving cloud of ash, as if blown away by a terrifying wind beyond our comprehension that exploded towards me, blowing me flat on my butt. This time I screamed as the dark ash cloud passed right by me, filling my senses with ash and a foul smell of burning flesh. When Hideki came running to the sound of my screams, he found me curled in a fetal position, sobbing, laying right next to a pair of Hiroshima shadows. The permanent burn marks of people vaporized in the bright, burning blast of the Hiroshima bomb. To this day, I have no logical explanation for anything I saw that night, other than what Hideki told me after. Now, you have been visited too, haven't you? What did Hideki's words mean? What is going on here? Are there vengeful ghosts of the atomic bomb roaming the streets of Hiroshima? Considering the dark history of the place, it would not be hard to imagine at all, and an American face seems about right for their wrath. These are all interesting peeks into paranormal phenomena in Japan, as witnessed through the lens of outsiders in Japan, who have in many cases come for the history and culture, but have during their journey been confronted with something very spooky beyond their understanding. Why did these sinister forces choose to appear to them, and what are they? Are any of these reports real at all? Whatever the case may be, it goes to show that such experiences can occur when you least expect it, no matter what corner of the earth you find yourself in. What would it take to turn the world into one big fusion reaction, wiping it clean of life and turning it into a barren rock? Asking for a friend. This story is from NuclearSecrecy.com. It's entitled, Cleansing Thermonuclear Fire, and this is written by Alex Wellerstein. One might wonder whether that kind of question presented itself while I was reading the news these days, and one would be entirely correct. But the reason people typically ask this question is in reference to the story that scientists at Los Alamos thought there was a non-zero chance that the Trinity test might ignite the atmosphere during the first wartime test. The basic idea is a simple one. If you heat up very light atoms, like hydrogen, to very high temperatures, they'll race around like mad, and the chances that they'll collide into each other and undergo nuclear fusion become much greater. If that happens, they'll release more energy. What if the first burst of an atomic bomb started fusion reactions in the air around it, say between atoms of oxygen or nitrogen? and those fusion reactions generated enough energy to start more reactions, and so on, across the entire atmosphere. It's hard to say how seriously this was taken. It is clear that at one point, Arthur Compton worried about it, and at just the same, several scientists came up with a persuasive reasoning to the effect that this could not happen. James Conant, upon feeling the searing heat of the Trinity test, briefly reflected that maybe this rumored thing had indeed come to pass. Then came a burst of white light that seemed to fill the sky and seemed to last for seconds. I had expected a relatively quick and bright flash. The enormity of the light and its length quite stunned me. My instantaneous reaction was that something had gone wrong and that the thermonuclear transformational of the atmosphere, once discussed as a possibility and jokingly referred to a few minutes earlier, had actually occurred. Which does at least tell us that some of those at the test were still joking about it, even up to the last few minutes. Fermi reportedly took bets on whether the bomb would destroy just New Mexico, or in fact the entire world, but it was understood as a joke. In the fall of 1946, Emil Konopinski, Cloyd Marvin, and Edward Teller wrote up a paper explaining why no detonation on Earth was likely to start an uncontrolled fusion reaction in the atmosphere. It is not clear to me whether this is exactly the logic they used prior to the Trinity detonation, but it is probably of a similar character to it. In short, there is only one fusion reaction based on the constituents of the oxygen that had any possibility at all, the nitrogen-nitrogen reaction, and the scientists were able to show that it was not very likely to happen or spread. Even if one makes assumptions that the reaction was much easier to initiate than anyone thought it was likely to be, it wasn't going to be sustained the reaction would cool through a variety of physical mechanisms faster than it would spread. This is all a common part of Manhattan Project lore, but I suspect that most who have read of this before have not actually read the Konopinski-Marvin-Teller paper to its end, where they end on a less sure-of-themselves note. There remains the distant possibility that some other less simple mode of burning may maintain itself in the atmosphere. Even if the reaction is stopped within a sphere of a few hundred meters radius, the resultant earth shock and the radioactive contamination of the atmosphere might become catastrophic on a worldwide scale. One may conclude that the arguments of this paper make it unreasonable to expect that the N plus N reaction could propagate. An unlimited propagation is even less likely. However, the complexity of the argument and the absence of satisfactory experimental foundations makes further work on the subject highly desirable. That's not quite as secure as one might desire, considering these scientists were in fact working on developing weapons many thousands of times more powerful than the Trinity device. There is an interesting section in the recently declassified Manhattan District Histories that discusses the ignition of the atmosphere problem. They repeat essentially the Kunipinski-Marvin Teller results, and then conclude, The impossibility of igniting the atmosphere was thus assured by science and common sense. The essential factors in these calculations, the coulomb forces of the nucleus, are among the best understood phenomena of modern physics. The philosophic possibility of destroying the Earth, associated with the theoretical convertibility of mass into energy, remains. The thermonuclear reaction, which is the only method known now by which such a catastrophe would occur, is evidently ruled out. The general stability of matter in the observable universe argues against it. Further knowledge of the nature of the great stellar explosions, novae and supernovae, will throw light on these questions. In the almost complete absence of real knowledge, it is generally believed that the tremendous energy of these explosions is of gravitational rather than nuclear origin. Which, again, is simultaneously reassuring and not reassuring. The footing on which this knowledge was based was pretty good, but like good scientists, they were happy, at least in secret reports, to acknowledge that there might, in fact, be ways for the planet to be destroyed through nuclear testing that they hadn't considered. Intellectually honest, but also terrifying, this issue came up again prior to the Operation Crossroads nuclear tests in early 1946, which was to include at least one underwater shot. None other than Nobel Prize winning physicist Percy Brigman worried that the detonating an atomic bomb underwater might ignite a fusion reaction in the water. Bridgman admitted his own ignorance into nuclear physics. His area of expertise was high-pressure physics, but warned that... Even the best human intellect has not imagination enough to envisage what might happen when we push far into new territory. To an outsider, the tactics of the argument which would justify running even the slightest risk of such a colossal catastrophe appears exceedingly weak. Bridgman's fears weren't really that the world would be destroyed. He worried more that if the scientists appeared to be cavalier about those things, and it was later made public that their argument for the safety of the tests was based on flimsy evidence, that it would lead to a strong public backlash. There might be a reaction against science in general which would result in suppression of all scientific freedom and the destruction of science itself. Bridgman's views were strong enough that they were forwarded to General Groves, but it isn't clear whether they resulted in any significant changes. Though I wonder if they were the impetus for the write-up of the Konopinsky marvin teller paper. The timing kind of works out, but I don't know. There isn't a lot of evidence that this problem concerned the scientists too much going forward. They had other things on their mind, like building thermonuclear weapons, and it quickly became clear that starting a large fusion reaction with a fission bomb is hard. Which is, in its own way, an answer to the original question. If starting a runaway fusion reaction on purpose is difficult, and requires very specific kinds of arrangements and considerations to get working, even on a relatively small scale, then starting one in the entire atmosphere is likely to be impossible. Great. Cross that one off the list of possibilities. But it wouldn't really be science unless they also eventually reframe the question. What conditions would be required if we were to try and turn the entire planet into a thermonuclear bomb? In 1975, a radiation physicist at the University of Chicago, H.C. Dudley, published an article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, warning of the ultimate catastrophe, of setting the atmosphere on fire. This received several rebuttals and a lot of scorn, including one in the pages of the Bulletin by Hans Beth, who had previously addressed this question in the Bulletin in 1946. Interestingly, though, Dudley's main desire that someone rerun these calculations on a modern computer simulation did seem to generate a study along these lines at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. In 1979, Livermore scientists Thomas A. Weaver and Lowell Wood, the latter appropriately a well-known Edward Teller protege, published a paper on necessary conditions for the initiation and propagation of nuclear detonation waves in plane atmospheres, which is a jargony way to ask the question in the title of this blog post. Here's the abstract. The basic conditions for the initiation of a nuclear detonation wave in an atmosphere having plane symmetry are developed. Two classes of such a detonation are identified those in which the temperature of the plasma is comparable to that of the electromagnetic radiation permeating it, and those in which the temperature of the plasma is much higher. Necessary conditions are developed for the propagation of such detonation waves for an arbitrarily great distance the contribution of fusion chain reactions to these processes is evaluated. By means of these considerations, it is shown that neither the atmosphere nor oceans of the Earth may be made to undergo propagating nuclear detonation under any circumstances. Now, if you just read the abstract, you might think that it was just another version with fancier calculations of the Konopinski-Marvin-Teller paper, and they do rule out conclusively that N plus N reactions would ever be energetic enough to be self-propagating. But it is far more, because unlike Konopinski-Marvin Teller, it actually focuses on those necessary conditions. What would need to be different if you did want to have a self-propagating reaction? The answer they found. If the Earth's oceans had 20 times more deuterium than they actually contain, they could be ignited by a 20 million megaton bomb, which is to say a bomb with the yield equivalent to 200 teratons of TNT, Or a bomb two million times more powerful than the Tsar Bomba's full yield. If we assumed that such a weapon had even a fantastically efficient yield to weight ratio like 50 kilotons per kilogram, that's still a device that would weigh around a billion metric tons. To put that into perspective, that's about 10 times more mass than all of the concrete of the Three Gorges Dam. So, there you have it. It can be done. You just need to totally change the composition of the oceans and you need a nuclear weapon many orders of magnitude more powerful than the gigaton bombs dreamed of by Edward Teller. And then maybe you can pull off the cleansing thermonuclear fire experience. Which is to say, this won't be how our planet dies. But don't worry, there are plenty of other plausible alternatives for human self-extinction out there. They just probably won't be as quick. This is a 2007 story from Utney.com. It is entitled, The Dark Side of Soy, and it's been written by Mary Vance Terrain. As someone who's conscious of her health, I spent 13 years cultivating a vegetarian diet. I took time to plan and balance meals that included products such as soy milk, soy yogurt, tofu, and chicken patties. I pored over labels looking for words I couldn't pronounce. Occasionally, one or two would pop up. Soy protein isolate? Great. They've isolated the protein from the soybean to make it more concentrated. Hydrolyzed soy protein? I never successfully rationalized that one, but I wasn't too worried. After all, in 1999, the FDA approved labeling I found on nearly every soy product I purchased. Diets low in saturated fat and cholesterol that include 25 grams of soy protein a day, May reduce the risk of heart disease soy ingredients weren't only safe they were beneficial after years of consuming various forms of soy nearly every day i felt reasonably fit but somewhere along the line i'd stopped menstruating i couldn't figure out why my stomach became so upset after i ate edamame or why i was often moody and bloated it didn't occur to me at the time to question soy heart protector and miracle food When I began studying holistic health and nutrition, I kept running across risks associated with eating soy. Endocrine disruption? Check. Digestive problems? Check. I researched soy's deleterious effects on thyroid, fertility, hormones, sex drive, digestion, and even its potential to contribute to certain cancers. For every study that proved a connection between soy and reduced disease risk, another cropped up to challenge the claims. What was going on? Studies showing the dark side of soy date back 100 years, says clinical nutritionist Kayla Daniel, author of The Whole Soy Story. The 1999 FDA-approved health claim pleased big business despite massive evidence showing risks associated with soy and against the protest of the FDA's own top scientists. Soy is a $4 billion U.S. industry that's taken these health claims to the bank. Besides promoting heart health, the industry says, soy can alleviate symptoms associated with menopause, reduce the risk of certain cancers, and lower levels of LDL, the bad cholesterol. Epidemiological surveys have shown that Asians, particularly in Japan and China, have a lower incidence of breast and prostate cancer than people in the United States, and many of these studies credit a traditional diet that includes soy. But Asian diets include small amounts, about 9 grams a day, of primarily fermented soy products, such as miso, nato, and tempeh, and some tofu. Fermenting soy creates health-promoting probiotics, the good bacteria our bodies need to maintain digestive and overall wellness. By contrast, in the United States, processed soy food snacks or shakes can contain over 20 grams of non-fermented soy protein in one serving. There is important information on the cancer-protective values of soy, says clinical nutritionist Ed Bauman, head of Bauman Clinic in Sebastopol, California, and director of Bauman College. Bauman cautions against painting the bean with a broad brush. As with any food, it can have benefits in one system and detriments in another. An individual who is sensitive to it may have an adverse response to soy, And not all soy is alike, he adds, referring to processing methods and quality. Soy is not a food that is native to North America or Europe, and you have issues when you move food from one part of the world to another, Bauman says. We fare better when we eat according to our ethnicity. Soy is a viable food, but we need to look at how it's used. Once considered a small-scale poverty food, soy exploded onto the American market. Studies, some funded by the industry, promoted soy's ability to lower disease risk while absolving guilt associated with eating meat. The soy industry has come a long way from when hippies were boiling up the beans, says Daniel. These days, the industry has discovered ways to use every part of the bean for profit. Soy oil has become the base for most vegetable oils. Soy lecithin, the waste product left over after the soybean is processed, is used as an emulsifier. Soy flour appears in baked and packaged goods. Different forms of processed soy protein are added to everything from animal feed to muscle-building protein powders. Soy protein isolate was invented for use in cardboard, Daniel says. It hasn't actually been approved as a food ingredient. Soy is everywhere in our food supply, as the star in cereals and health-promoting foods and hidden in processed foods. Even if you read every label and avoid cardboard boxes, you're likely to find soy in your supplements and vitamins. Look out for vitamin E derived from soy oil. In foods such as canned tuna, soups, sauces, breads, meats, and chocolate, and in pet food and body care products. It hides in tofu dogs under aliases such as textured vegetable protein, hydrolyzed vegetable protein, and lecithin, which is troubling since the processing required to hydrolyze soy protein into vegetable protein produces excitotoxins such as glutamate and aspartate, a component of aspartame, which cause brain cell death. Soy is also one of the foods, in addition to wheat, corn, eggs, milk, nuts, and shellfish, most likely to cause allergic reactions. Most people equate food allergies with anaphylaxis or a severe emergency immune response, but it is possible to have a subclinical sensitivity, which can lead to health problems over time, and is exacerbated by the lack of variety common in today's American diet. People can do an empirical food sensitivity test by eliminating the food for a period of time and reintroducing it to see if there's an immune response, but most don't do this, says Bauman. Genetically modified soy is the most problematic, and that's probably what most people are eating if they're not paying attention. People can develop sensitivity to a food that has antigens or bacteria not originally in the food chain, as is the case with GM foods. Yet, avoiding GM soy doesn't mean all is well, Daniel says. One question I get all the time is, what if I eat only organic soy? The assumption is that GM soy is problematic and organic is fine. Certainly, organic is better, but the bottom line is that soybeans naturally contain plant estrogens, toxins, and anti-nutrients, and you can't remove those. The highest risk is for infants who are fed soy formula. It's the only thing they're eating, they're very small, and they're at a key stage developmentally, says Daniel. The estrogens in soy will affect the hormonal development of these children, and it will certainly affect their growing brains, reproductive systems, and thyroids, Soy formula also contains large amounts of manganese, which has been linked to attention deficit disorder and neurotoxicity in infants. The Israeli Health Ministry recently issued an advisory saying that infants should avoid soy formula altogether. Antinutrients and soy block enzymes needed for digestion and naturally occurring phytates block absorption of essential minerals. This is most worrisome for vegans and vegetarians who eat soy as their main source of protein and for women in menopause who up their soy intake through supplements. Soy contains phytochemicals called isoflavones. Studies claim isoflavones can mimic the body's own estrogens, raising a woman's estrogen levels, which fall after menopause, causing hot flashes and other symptoms. On the other hand, isoflavones may also block the body's estrogens, which can help reduce high estrogen levels, therefore reducing risk for breast cancer or uterine cancer before menopause. High estrogen levels have been linked to cancers of the reproductive system in women. Although soy's isoflavones may have an adaptogenic effect, they also have the potential to promote hormone-sensitive cancers in some people. Studies on the effects of isoflavones on human estrogen levels are conflicting, and it's possible that they affect people differently. In men, soy has been shown to lower testosterone levels and sex drive, according to Daniel. Bauman believes processed soy foods are problematic but maintains that soy has beneficial hormone-mediating effects. People are largely convenience-driven, he says. We're looking at this whole processed food convenience market and we're making generalizations about a plant. Is soy the problem or is it the handling and packaging and processing of the plant that's the problem? Primary sources of food are a good thing. Once there was a bean but then it got cooked and squeezed and the pulp was separated out and it was heated and processed for better shelf life and mouthfeel. Soy milk is second or third level in terms of processing. Baumann's eating for health approach calls for a variety of natural and seasonal unprocessed whole foods, including soy in moderation, tailored to individual biochemistry and sensitivities. Using soy as part of a diet can bring relief for perimenopause, for example, he says. Throw out the soy and you throw out the isoflavones. The literature is extensive on the benefits of soy, and that should always be stated, just as the hazards should be. That's science. These studies are not ridiculous or contrived, but take a look at them. Who's funding them? asked Bauman. There's a lot of problems with these studies, Daniel says, adding that the 1999 heart health claim was an industry-funded initiative. Even if there is positive information, and even if these studies are well-designed, we need to weigh that against the fact that we've also got really good studies showing the dangers. Better safe than sorry is the precautionary principle. Possible benefits are far outweighed by proven risks. Daniel and Bauman agree on the benefits of variety. My experience as a clinical nutritionist is that people who have a varied diet tend not to get into trouble, says Daniel. We like to demonize certain foods in this society, says Bauman. If you want to find a fault, you'll find it. The bottom line is what is a healthy diet? now another story from the no sleep subreddit the story is entitled truck and it's by ghetto Ceratops. i drive a truck for a living big old tractor trailer for a long while i worked with agencies to help me find freight but after the wife died and all the truck payments were done hallelujah i decided to work independently a couple decades out on the road gets you connections all over the place If I'm stuck in Nevada and I decide I'd rather be in Florida in the next couple days and get paid for it, I've got a guy for that. I've got a guy that can get me just about anywhere, honestly, and for a long time, that was good enough for me. I had already sold the house, and every penny that I wasn't spending on fuel was going straight into my pockets. As fate would have it, though, little guys like me started to disappear. Big agencies like Landstar were in bed with just about everyone, and all that cash I was sitting on started to dry up. In the trucking business if you aren't making money you're losing it and boy was I losing it. One day I got a call from a buddy of mine that used to haul military loads out of Hill Air Force Base saying that there were a couple of weeks worth of dedicated runs in Alabama that he figured I would be interested in. I didn't even bother asking him how much it was paying before I jumped on the job. I was at my pickup in Alabama the very next morning I figure whatever the operation the shipper was running was pumping out loads 24-7 because when I arrived at 3 in the morning the facility was already awake and noisy as hell. I back up into the dock and a thin Asian man that we call Randy walks over to give me my paperwork. He looks flatly at me. I assume that the facility must be a metal shop solely based on the symphony of industrial noises emanating from inside but Randy didn't look the type. Slacks, gray button-up, tie and polished brown shoes there's no way that dude works in a metal shop i roll down my window and lean out towards him lighting a cigarette what are we hauling boss man he's signing the manifest and i can see beads of sweat drip from his bald head onto the concrete loading yard the sun was blistering that summer i flick on some shades and drag on my cigarette hey bud what are we hauling randy looks annoyed 964 pounds of recycled plastics. He hands me the bill. You got any more in there? This trailer can run 42,000 pounds. 43 if I have to. I sign off the load and pass the sweat-stained paper back to him. 964 pounds. Plastics. Be at the drop-off listed on the manifest by tomorrow morning. Randy flicks out his phone and stabs at the screen with his thumbs. The address has been emailed to you. He pockets the phone and walks off. Not another word out of him. It is at that moment that I decide that Randy is a prick. Loading is quick and I get the okay to pull out. In my rear views I get a glimpse into the building. I remember it so clearly. There was just nothing. Nothing. Hell, the only person I could even see was Randy who stood on the edge of the loading dock, arms crossed. It's weird. I understand that most people actually have no clue how the freight logistics industry works, but I'm sure any dum-dum would think the same thing that I did. That's fucking weird. Ten hours, eight cigarettes, two Big Macs, and a handful of bathroom breaks later, I'm at the last turn of my trip. The drop-off location is supposedly down this little country road that looks like it goes to nowhere particular. Oak trees start popping up here and there as I'm heading down that lonely country road. But before I know it, the trees thicken, their gray roots cracking and warping the pavement so badly that it's almost impassable. After what seems like an eternity of bumps and scrapes, the trees clear, and I can see the vague shape of the drop-off facility in the glow of my headlights. Unlike the pickup, the place was dead. The whole thing was falling apart. It was so bad, in fact, that I called the reference number I would received just to confirm that I was, in fact, not at the correct location. To my delight, Randy picked up the phone. What do you need? He barks. Hey, sorry boss, I know it's late, but Mr. Freeman, what do you need? He repeats with a sigh. I'm starting to get pissed. I've worked with guys like this before. Typically our relationship doesn't last too long. I followed the GPS to the turn off and followed it all the way to the end, just like the bill said. There's a pause. Hello? Yes, and? And I'm parked outside of an abandoned factory or something. Windows busted out, door boarded up, it's a shit show. Where's the damn drop off? You said you followed the GPS? Yes. Then you took the turn off and followed it all the way to the end? Yeah, that's the prop. Then you are at the location, Mr. Freeman. Your drop isn't scheduled until 6 a.m. Good night. Click. It was at that moment that I decided Randy was a prick. Again. After that lovely conversation, I just said screw it and went to bed. There was no point in arguing, and I was out of legal drive time on my clock anyway. I wasn't going anywhere. I did manage to find what could vaguely be considered a loading dock on the derelict estate and backed in. I was closing the blinds on the windshield, looking out into the empty woods and the mist crawling between the forest of oaks, and a shiver ran down my spine. Maybe it was just tensions, but I spent that entire night trying to shake the feeling that something was watching me. I must have dozed off at some point because I'm awoken to the sound of something banging on my driver's side door like it's trying to break the whole damn thing off. I whip open the door and see Randy standing there, clearly not amused. What the hell, man? Are you trying to break my goddamn truck? He doesn't even flinch. I have been knocking for... He glances at his phone. Five minutes on the dot, Mr. Freeman. We need you to leave the premises.' leave the premises i'm not going anywhere bub until i get unloaded and get my cash i'm already crawling out of the truck ready to beat the senses off his premises but the sun is bright and crawling higher in the sky than expected randy reaches behind him and pulls out a roll of cash it's 8:30, mr freeman here's your pay just as the bill stated i plucked the money from his hand with the anxious twitch of a mouse stealing a meal from an unsprung trap Tearing off the rubber band that holds them together, I flick through the wad of cash. It's all there. Randy is already walking away by the time I get done counting. We will be reimbursing you for your fuel when you arrive at the pickup again. His heels click against the concrete as he walks back to the dock. I don't even look in my mirrors that time as I leave. A part of me was hoping maybe he had fallen under the tires and I would just... I couldn't explain it at the time, but I wasn't mad at Randy. I was scared, which is ridiculous. I should have been terrified. Most of the drive back is a daze. I'm exhausted from the sleepless night before and from my interactions with Randy. I seriously considered just bouncing to Florida and forgetting the whole ordeal, but the money was too good. I'm practically falling asleep at the wheel, which isn't common. Truckers learn all these tricks to stay awake when on long hauls. Our lives depend on it, and so do yours. We're 70,000-pound wrecking balls on wheels pumped full of flammable liquids and plated in steel. Any driver that considers themselves anything but a lethal weapon has no business being in a truck. Even with that being said, no driver is immune to road hypnosis. You need to be careful when watching that dotted line, because sooner or later, you'll get lost in them. White, black, white, black, white, black, white, black. I blink, and I'm at the pickup. It's night already, but the facility is still open, booming even. The screams of industrial saws and presses peel through the air. The bay doors to the dock are closed, though, and I can't see inside. I park in the same place as before and light a cigarette. The nicotine starts crawling through my veins, pushing out the fatigue. Every once in a while, someone emerges from the shop to smoke as well. I watch him like animals behind glass at the zoo until another comes out, shares his lighter, and looks up at me. Somehow, they're no longer the animals. I am the one trapped in a cage behind glass. I'm the one trained to perform little tricks with the promise of a treat if I do it right. I can do four and a half thousand if you can get this to Oregon before the end of the week. I step out of the truck, asserting my humanity. Throwing an unlit cig in my mouth, I wave. Howdy, you guys got a light and a lung? Because both mine are bad. They don't laugh, but in their defense, I'm not very funny. Light? The first one, a middle-aged Hispanic man, passes me a Zippo with the SeaWorld logo on it and the name Jesse engraved in the back. The second one wordlessly retreats back inside. SeaWorld. I, uh, I light up. I used to take my grandkid out there before all that documentary stuff came out. Amazing how one person can spoil everyone else's fun. He looks at me and nods, exhaling thick fumes that smell like clove. Yeah, you still go? He flicks some ash onto the building behind him. Not much anymore. Kids are out of the house, and the wife saw that movie too. The man chuckles to himself and pulls out another cigarillo from the breast pocket of his button-down. I still think it's kind of cool. He looks my way, and I nod back at him, flicking the Zippo open and striking its tiny wick. Once his tobacco is lit, he fills up his lungs with the fragrant smoke. You know, fish and shit. Yeah, fish. Fish. I click the lighter closed and spin it in my fingers. We stand there in silence for a good while longer than I was comfortable with, listening to the crickets chatter away at one another. So, what are you guys shipping out of here? Seems like this place is always pretty busy. He tamps the cigarillo against the wall and puts it back in his pocket. Gotta go. Breaks over. The man practically runs back inside and slams the door behind him. I grab the handle and jiggle it, but it's locked. Looking around, I see a sun-bleached plastic buzzer fixed on the bricks beside the door, and I ring it. Hello? Buzzes the box. Yeah, um, one of your guys left his lighter out here. Silence. Hey, can I at least come in and take a leak? I can hear the room ambience for a beat before the box speaks up. This is a secure facility. Were you given a badge? Badge? No, I'm just picking up your freight. I was here yesterday. Only authorized personnel are allowed in the facility, it croaks. I sigh. Are you serious right now? I just have to piss. Authorized personnel only. There is a part of me that wants to just barge in there, but I don't. It's not worth it. I walk around the truck and piss in the bushes like an animal. The moment isn't lost on me. I'm finishing things up, feeling lower than low, and just as I'm about to hunker down for the night in the rig, I notice something. A dent. Not a huge one, mind you, but I know every inch of my rig. When there's a dent, I see it, but usually I don't do much about it. Dents happen. Dents from the outside happen. This dent was made on the inside. Great. I figure that the jackasses unloading me must have clipped the inside with a forklift or something. This kind of stuff's always a hassle. I can just hear, how do you know it wasn't there before, already? As much as I just want to ignore it and let sleeping dogs lie, this dog wouldn't catch a wink knowing that there was a dent of unknown origin on his trailer. I decide to take a quick peek. I throw open the doors to the trailer and hoist myself inside. Using the light of my phone, I comb the empty trailer with long sweeps of illumination until I get to the end. As expected, the telltale scrapes of a forklift scar the entire length of the deformation. Other than that, everything is as it should be. I wasn't going to start barking over a scuff. The shoe is a completely different matter, though. Back all the way in the corner lay a single, dirty, navy blue Chuck Taylor. I trained my phone's flashlight toward the offending article and paced my way to the corner. I crouched down and flipped over the canvas tongue, size 4. Upon a closer viewing, the shoe appeared to be relatively new and in good condition despite the dried muck that covered it. It looked like some kid walked him right out of the store and into a creek bed. It's funny how something so innocuous, a stray sneaker, can make you feel so much confusion. How does something like that get in there? It doesn't. It doesn't just get there. It has to be placed there or forgotten there. I tried to not think about the possibility of sinister implications. I didn't do anything. I didn't put it there. There's only one thing that can really be known for certain in this particular situation someone is missing a shoe that simple no need to panic no need to race through the mind with why questions i just calmly fetch another cigarette calmly take out my new sea world lighter and calmly strike the flint then i calmly strike it again and again calmly of course i calmly realize that it won't light and calmly close up my truck after calmly placing the shoe in my pocket I calmly climb into the cab, I calmly fish out my old light, and then I chain smoke until the witching hour. When I'm out of cigs, I fall asleep thinking about walking to the nearby gas station to buy some more. I wake up in the morning, a string of drool leading from my lip to a puddle on the dash. Squinting through the curtain hung over my driver's side window, I can see Randy, already waking up, staring at me behind a pair of blue reflective sunglasses. To avoid the annoyance of him beating down my door, I open the shades and roll down the window. His stride is consistent as he walks up the couple stairs leading to my door. 402 pounds. Plastic, he says as he hands off the bill. Same drop, I ask, signing my name and passing his copy back to him. Same drop. I saw a couple pickup trucks in the parking lot, man. You really don't need a whole rig to carry 400 pounds. I'm getting irritated, but I'm not sure why randy sets me on pins i'll take the cash it just seems overkill is all randy leaves without another word and something in my skull starts to itch i don't bother trying to talk to anyone loading me up heck i don't even leave the truck whole ordeal seems like it's not worth the trouble anymore but that's the most ridiculous part there hasn't been any trouble other than the confusion with the drop-off point things have been smooth sailing yeah, Randy's a prick, but so are 90% of the other foremen that I've worked with. Maybe things were just going too smoothly. I hear my doors shut, and a Hispanic man, who I didn't recognize, give me a thumbs up and waves me off. He looks exhausted and frail, sickly even. That's when I notice the blue and off-yellow spattering of bruises running through the length of both of his arms. I would have asked if he was alright, but I had already pulled off, When I look back, I can only see his boots as they slowly disappear behind the meticulously closing bay door. I decide then that this would be my last delivery for... I didn't even know the name. Using my knee to steer, it's a bad habit. Don't write me. I already know. I reach into the glove box and pull out both bills. With a quick scan, I notice the names in the box for shipper are, in fact, different. The sweat-stained one from the day before reads Universal Solutions Incorporated, and the one for today's reads Clayton's Recycling. Once before, I had shipped a load of furniture across state lines. It's the kind of run you do as more of a favor than a moneymaker. I was a little more than a day into the drive when I got pulled over by an unmarked police car. The younger me was sweating bullets, worried about getting any more points on my license, but he never would have expected that he was a meth mule. Yep, in the cushions. After a couple months of interrogations and court dates, things settled down, but I never forgot the shame of being cuffed and put in a cruiser. I'd never been arrested before or since. I made sure of that. Something about driving this load, though, felt a lot like how I felt when they ripped out that first wrap of meth. I pulled the tiny, dusty shoe from my pocket and carefully nested it in the pile of fuel receipts on the dash. The drive to the drop was as uneventful as the first. Alabama has these long country roads that go like the ones out in the Midwest, but the South has a lot to look at cows and fields of corn and wheat mostly, and the truck stops are nice. They're lonely, but that isn't always a bad thing. Today, it was a bad thing. I was developing an unshakable sense of paranoia and desperately wanted human contact. Before the pull-off, I had parked at a truck stop just to see another living soul. There, I bought a package of sour gummy worms and a Coke from a pimple-faced teen no older than 18. Really been a scorcher here recently, I say, leaning over the counter to pull out my wallet. Yep, it's been hot, he replies flatly. He pulls out his phone and starts typing a text message. You been working here long? He's glued to his cell phone, tapping on the register for my change without even looking. The register pops open and he digs around in the wells for coins before passing them off to me. Seventy-three cents as your change. Thanks. You've been working here very long, boss? I take the cash. No. He puts down his phone and shoots me a glazed expression that says, my parents don't understand me and my favorite band is pretty obscure. You need anything else, sir? I guess not. I spit out, defeated. As I'm exiting the shop and passing up my truck, I'm staring at the plastic security seal that ties my doors together. A part of me wants to break it and look inside. A part of me wants to not feel so goddamn freaked out all the time. I wonder if I should go back on medication. I've been wondering that a lot since I started hauling this freight. Odd waves of dread pulse through me like cold, dead blood, and before I know it, I'm back at the wheel heading down that same lonely highway away from that same lonely truck stop. The sun is setting around that time, shading the cow pastures in hues of purple and orange. A pack of brown horses spring to life when they see me and dash on the other side of the fence, daring me to race them. My dad helped breed horses with a business partner out in Clovetown, Kentucky when I was a kid. I spent a lot of time with my mom in the years after they split, but getting to see my dad was always a treat. I'd wake up with him and lay down some feed. Once, I even watched a birth. At the time, it terrified me. Now, though, I look back at it with nostalgia. I remember it was just kind of falling out into the dirt, covered in blood and all kinds of mess. Honestly, I thought it was dead because it didn't move for so long. Maybe that's what scared me. Something dying before it even had a chance to live. I tried to run away and cry. I remember crying a lot back then but my dad grabbed me by the shoulders and told me to keep watching. I'm glad he did. Like magic, the foal shot up to its knobby, jittery legs. It was clumsy magic, for sure, but even now I'm hard-pressed to remember anything else that filled me with such a cocktail of different emotions. The horses slow their pace, and I spot a kid playing on a rope swing tied to a dead sycamore tree behind a whitewashed plantation home. Soon, the back porch light would blink and he would run inside for dinner. His dad would tell him about all the chores he neglected that day. He will apologize and sneak cookies into bed. Through his open window, he will whisper to the stars and tell them all the things he'll be when he's older. He'll tell them how much he wants to be like his father and how his horse will be in the Kentucky Derby. His eyes will hang heavy on his face as he reads himself the bedtime story of his future. The stars will wink goodbye with flashes of light, already hours old, white, black, white, black, white, black. The shattered, jagged glass teeth of the broken windows smile at me from the drop-off point. The rogue wind batters my trailer, warning of an oncoming storm that was already spitting droplets of rain on my windshield. I decide that when I'm done with this stop, I'm going back on my meds. I back up to the bay door, focusing on its reflection in my side mirrors. The truck beeps rhythmically, warning anyone that might be behind it to make way. Then, another gust of wind rips through the air and yanks my mirror so fast that it collides in my window. There's a staccato crunch as a web of fractures splinter through the glass. The sharp chunks spill from the door and crash onto the concrete below. Some pieces are blown into the cab "'Carry on another breeze, and I feel a shard slice my palm that I'm shielding my face with. "'Shit. I pop open the door and precariously step out. "'Glass crunches under my boot as I land on the first step. "'The mess is scattered all over the yard, sitting in fresh puddles forming from the downpour of rain. "'I look at my hand and find a scarlet stream flowing from a gash that stretched the entire length of my palm. "'Shit. Shit. I don't like blood. I try to ignore it, but it's there.' I know it's there. Why is focusing on trying not to think about something so hard, really? I'm getting nauseous at that point and I dash for the door of the complex. It's locked. Of course it's locked. The windows, however, were very unlocked. In fact, they were wide open. I was panicked. The last thing I was worried about was trespassing laws and it was an emergency after all, right? I crawled through the sill, careful not to further injure myself the facility had a factory floor layout and was, as one would assume, very dark. Again, I use my phone to light my way as I search for a bathroom of some kind. As I'm wandering in near pitch blackness, I find it almost impossible to determine what the building could possibly be used for. There is no equipment, save for a couple old trucks stashed away in one corner. There is an office room that has been sectioned off from the rest of the shop but I can easily peer inside it through two large glass windows that have been strategically installed to look out on the largest portion of the shop floor. Seconds away from falling into a panic, I find a blue door marked bathroom in permanent marker. I throw myself inside and immediately hang a left to the closest sink. The water is freezing cold when I turn on the spigot, but it does the job in washing out my wound. An immediate sense of relief washes over me as the water washes away the blood, and I inspect the cut. It's long, but shallow, and I give myself a deserved chuckle and stare into the mirror. You're too old for all this, I tell the reflection. I smile back. Fishing around in the darkness of the bathroom, I find a nearly empty paper towel dispenser and something I couldn't recognize at first. I begin to wrap up my hand as I inspect what appears to be a series of black poles with a small plastic platform on top. It's a camera tripod. Under it lie a charger for... I assume the camera battery. I'm inspecting the tripod when I accidentally bump my phone that had been resting face down on the edge of the sink to provide a little light. I try to catch it, but I wind up smacking it midair. The phone clashed with the dirty tile floor and slides under one of the stalls. Heading into the stall, I notice a second light for the first time. A grim realization settled in my guts like a summer fog over a valley. A cheap digital camera, locked on top of an identical tripod, was erected in front of me, the lens facing where a toilet would normally have been. The plumbing had been gutted, though, and the wall had been demolished to lengthen the stall by a couple of yards. At the far end, directly in view of the recording device, was a rusted metal chair. The legs had been screwed into the ground with a series of metal brackets, and cuff-like fixtures were installed where someone's legs would naturally fall. I felt sick. I retrieved my phone and dared to venture a peek at the camera's screen. In the top left corner, the symbol of a battery blinked red to alert its dwindling charge. Somehow, through the night vision screen, the chair seemed so much more sinister. Its image flashed with the blinking infrared light being cast from the front of the device. I pull myself closer to the mesmerizing terror of its image and notice something luminous in the corner. A specter hiding in a phantasmal plane. I pull my gaze from the camera and shine my phone's light toward the chair. Tucked away in a messy pile behind the seat is a wad of clothes with a single discarded sneaker peeking its toe out from underneath. I nearly knock over the camera trying to scramble away. The blood rushing through my ears sounded like war drums, I dart to the next stall and slam it open. Another camera, dead this time, was facing yet another chair. A tiny, blood-soaked hoodie lay underneath the tripod. The stall next to it was even worse. God, I've spent so many nights trying to forget it. I would give anything, anything, to erase the entire ordeal from my memory. But I can't. Trying not to think of something you already know is so, so hard. Impossible, really just like that tiny pair of pants and soiled underwear were so impossibly small, so fragile. A pack of off-brand prophylactics contents were spilled on the ground. I ran so fast after that, running from the site as if fleeing fast enough would somehow leave that image behind instead of forever burning itself in my thoughts. I could taste stomach acid in my mouth. The factory spun circles in my head and threatened to cave in on me. Then my legs gave out. I fall hard into the dust of the shop floor and dive into my pockets with trembling hands to recover a cigarette. I throw it in between my teeth. I'm staring cross eyed at the top of the cig and flick the zippo from my breast pocket. Shh, 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 Nothing. The rain's coming down in buckets by that time, and lightning sends pealing screams of thunder through the air. I can feel my head swim as I try to anchor myself there, staring out the frame of the shop's broken window. My truck rests there still running raindrops pelt into the trailer like liquid bullets and the clatter of hail punctuates the ambience from there i can see the plastic security seal unbroken no doubt holding back a horror that few people could even conjure in their most inhuman nightmares the lighter is bone dry and sends out taunting sparks into the air I stand to my feet and lean against the ancient steel cargo container to my left. I can feel something rustling inside that rusted womb. In the stillness, in that chamber of atrocities, I wonder which abomination is greater one who conceives evil or one who delivers it into the world. Four hundred and two pounds. That concludes this episode of the Curse Land podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curse Land. You can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.